Welcome to Happenings of Grace, a podcast dedicated to sharing the ways in which God works in the congregation of Grace Covenant Presbyterian Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. I'm Timothy Nargi, one of the ruling elders, and today we have a discussion about the book Confronting Injustice Without Compromising Truth by Thaddeus Williams. This will be an ongoing discussion dealing with questions of justice, one question a month for 12 months. The discussion is hosted jointly by the men's and women's ministries of Grace Covenant Church, and anyone can join in on the discussion at any time. Today, we have our third question, the idolatry question. Does our vision of social justice make a false god out of the self, the state, or social acceptance? All right, let me open us a prayer and then we start. Laura, thank you for this evening and bringing us all here. Thank you for this book that we continue to study. We pray that it would help us to expose uh, sin and biases in our heart, um, but also help us to uh, address the culture who does not uh, submit to you or even care about you. We pray that it would be a good tool for us. And tonight, that uh, as the last two meetings have been, um, iron would sharpen iron, and that you would help us grow in, in your likeness and also the way that you think and how we should engage with the culture. Be with all of us here tonight, Lord, and help us to glorify you in our conversation. Amen. Amen. Okay. Um, so tonight we are focusing on question number three, which is the end of part one, so the end of the first three questions. So our session in December will be about the first um, question in part two, as well as that introductory part of like the overall aim of part two, which is unity or uproar. Um, and in this question, it is obviously linked with the first two because they're all collectively together in um, part one, but it's continuing our understanding of God uh, with the first question saying that we, we have to recognize the Godhood of God in order to achieve any sense of earthly justice, which will never be fully achieved this side of heaven, but which is owed entirely and founded in God and God's word. Um, the second question was, do we recognize the image of God in everyone, especially people with whom we disagree, especially people um, who we would see as enemies? Um, do we recognize and respect what dignity human life has because of its creator? And then with this question, the kind of the overarching like implied question is, who do we want to be God? because of the different idols that he, um, Thaddeus Williams kind of identifies, again, with more alliteration, which I appreciate. Um, what do we prioritize over God? And some of them, I think, especially the ones that he identifies as idols that lean more toward the right ideologically, there's some that become kind of like Christianity and, mm. of like Christianity and politics or Christianity and education. Um, which I think is explained brilliantly in, in uh, one of the screw tape letters, letter 25, about how distracting that can be, because you're trying to focus Christianity not on understanding your role as a sinner and your need for Christ, but in celebrating your superiority and your like separateness from the world, um, in using Christianity in order to like as a means to an end rather than a thing in and of itself. Um, and so he addresses briefly some of the idols that are kind of leaning that way more ideolo ideologically, but then he acknowledges that since social justice B and what we associate with social justice does t tend to be found more so on the left, 
he explores three really significant idols that I think anyone under any spectrum can like idolize and, and worship falsely. But these tend to be the driving forces behind some of the like um, initiatives toward like open-mindedness, diversity and whatnot. And he um, sets up three of them as self, state, and social acceptance. And just how hypnotizing all of those are when it comes to who we want to worship the ultimate thing that we want to worship is self and so that is the first idol that he kind of explores um in reading these sections were there things that stood out to you um things that like he gave a term to um or things that you had found kind of in your own research or your own observation of the world around us anything that kind of stood out oh there's gwen well substitution uh you know I guess especially for social injustice B, where they rejected Christianity in the world, mm -hmm. there's still the image of God, so to speak, imprinted on them, and they're trying to satisfy that with, you know, equity, justice, rightness, mm -hmm. caring. You know, you care for the the poor and the, the weak and the prisoners. So they have those impulses, but they don't have the author of the, the image of God, you know, they have to try to write their own. And it's a disaster. So in taking on um, the values that are within the character of God, they substitute God, they substitute self for God, mm -hmm. and wrap themselves in a mantle mm -hmm. of those values and say, this is right, this is good stuff. What's wrong with you? Why don't Only because it comes from self. They don't, have a, they don't have a point of reference. We have God as our point of reference and what we see everything through. Right. They don't have that lens. They kind of, their self is what they see right. it through. Because it's the only lens that's right. available. It's, it's the only lens. It's so scary because... Self is yeah, because you're one self and Tim's a self. That's where that Elijah's my truth is my truth, so it's the truth, and your truth yeah. is your truth, so it's the truth, whether we agree or not, you know. So that's what's scary, and I think that's where all of these ideas are just going. This is not a new thought, but it's an excellent reminder that idolatry occurs when we take something that is good make it ultimate mm -hmm. yeah. it's so mm -hmm. subtle so subtle and it's something that we can easily easily fall prey to tim uh when i was reflecting i was i was like 42 years ago about this time of year i became a christian and in that time period in college we were all discussing things and so the question came up what is the most popular uh, idol in America or the most popular thing we worship in America and it was secular humanism mm -hmm. okay and I got that same flavor when I was reading through this saying that you know nothing's changed it hadn't changed we're still worshiping ourselves okay. we're worshiping the image of God instead of God himself mm -hmm. yeah it's a very much a Romans 1 um, situation as it has been throughout all eternity mm -hmm. 
Um, I think there's uh, something that I find kind of curious, which is this idea of moral superiority when it comes to determining what is worthy of worship. Hmm. And especially when we look at like the um, kind of interchangeability of what people see as happiness versus joy when like joy is something that is more eternal joy is something that comes from the lord but what makes you happy is seen as the ultimate good i mean right and, and open deists put that in the declaration of independence right the life liberty and pursuit of happiness were unalienable rights and yet one of those is almost unachievable without that sense of christ right happiness is is quite temporary whereas joy is something that is eternal and so when we start worshiping what makes me happy, and I mean, so much of that, I mean, it's on like t-shirts and everything, right? Do what makes you happy. And, and sometimes that's that's good, right? It's a reminder that we can enjoy things. But on the other sense, that if you pursue that as your ultimate good, where is the limit? Like, do what makes you happy. And therefore, if this is what makes me happy, and yet God a being that may or may not be believed in by this person says that what they want is not good for them, then is that God worthy of worship if it's somehow stopping them from being happy? Which is where we get this idea of the idol of self, right? Who is worthy of worship? And if God, if this ultimate ruler of the universe is going to stop me from having what I want, then that won't be my God because my God would want me to be happy and therefore I can have what I want. Well, it's, it's the, the rejection of uh, external absolute truth. Mm -hmm. If you're a Christian or even other religions, there's some something outside the self. It's not existentialism, but it's external that imposes the rules. Mm -hmm. you know, we, we use the word, uh, but it's, yeah, so if we're for something or against something, it's in the word. Well, you know, if the word says something different, then, uh, you know, certain behaviors and we, that would be our opinion. But, mm -hmm. uh, you know, uh, hmm. you know, we, we have this right and wrong. It's absolute. But. When that's rejected, then they make up their own. But they, everybody submits to something authoritative. Um, for believers, it's the word. Mm -hmm. For the Hindu, it's it's something else. Um, um, for the um, for the atheist, um, it's something else, but there's something authoritative that everyone is drawn to. I think the author here Landers. Yeah, it might be Ann Landers, but it's it's some there's always something authoritative there. Yeah, yeah it's ironic that in the um the relativist mind their standard for right and wrong still comes to something objective whether or not it's in agreement with the bible is irrelevant it still comes down to something objective which is contrary to 
relativistic mm -hmm. thought. With that idea of relativism, like you mentioned this earlier, what's the danger whenever it comes to the phrase, my truth? Because what they ultimately mean is my perception of truth or my perception of reality. Um, and I think that's what makes a lot of the, the quest for identity that we see so heartbreaking because they're pursuing something that can't be real. And yet it has to be real in order for them to feel real. And so for them to self-actualize, right, uh, if we look at, like, Abraham Maslow's hierarchy of needs, um, which was developed by a secular humanist. He was a humanist psychologist. And so a lot of what he said was right, right? People will not be able to um, develop, mature, grow unless basic physical needs are met. But how he interpreted that was that ultimately people are good. And so when you provide these things for them, then everything will be okay. And so um, they'll be able to self-actualize because basic physical things are met. And with the interpretation of how that's being applied now, we see that with like, who do you want to be, right? And so if anything is stopping you from self-actualizing, then it becomes not an unnecessary thing of just something that you want for yourself that isn't crucial to your identity, but a necessary thing. It's part of your need for safety. It's part of your need for belonging. If you can have these things that you want in order to see yourself the way that you think you should be. And when we change that from want versus need, what do you want versus what do you need? We conflate those two things. I think we're kind of bending boundaries around a lot of things that, that shouldn't bend. So that idea of like, what do I want and how does that want become need? And how do we make other people recognize that need rather than just recognize what I want? That I think becomes its own idol. This is how we can self-actualize. This is, you're stopping me from being happy if you don't let me have these things. I've been trying to find a line in here, and I, I can't find it now, but I, I thought it was very good, that the, the crushing weight of determining our identity is too much for us to bear. Yes. It's, something it's on page 32. It's at 30, the bottom. It's only, mm -hmm. thank you, it's only something that, that God can do, and I think that what you're saying comes very close to that. Other thoughts, other comments about that idol of the self? Well, I think it's funny that... You know, when you think of the idol of the self, that we aren't all good. <laughs> you know, we have the old man, nature. And the only thing that makes us, you know, pure is Christ. So it's it's just the premise is wrong. Mm -hmm. Well, that's back to Romans where people are seeking to fill that hole that only God can fill, but they're seeking it in self-happiness. And what you're talking about, they're trying to that I'm struck I keep thinking about the rich young ruler and Jesus says give up all your wealth and he's like no I'm giving it up it's kind of where society is Jesus is gonna God is gonna make me take away what's gonna make me happy yeah so I can't follow him because I can't let go of what I perceive is making me happy there's an interesting point when you mentioned that that rich young ruler because of people often focus on the the latter half of his interaction with Christ where uh, Jesus compels him to give all he has to the poor, but they kind of overlook the first part of that interaction, which is when um, 
the rich young ruler says, what must I do mm-hmm. to have eternal life? And that in itself is a warped question. Um, and he, he says, you know, good teacher, what must I do to earn eternal life? And Jesus replies with, why do you call me good? Um, and the scripture says that only God is good, right? So you know the law, you have the law of Moses, you know what, you know, you are told to do. Um, and the rich young ruler kind of with no sense of self-awareness says, well, all these I've kept since I was a boy, which can't be true because the first one is love the Lord, like love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he immediately, like to paraphrase, whenever Jesus says, like, why do you call me good? Only God is good. The Eurotrain ruler immediately went, oh, I know, me too. Like that's, and that immediately, like reveals that he was never going to be able to give up his wealth. It wasn't a thing that Christ was compelling all to do, right? You all have to relinquish, um, you know, your physical belongings in order to enter Christ's kingdom. It wasn't necessarily like a, a call toward asceticism or like self-punishment or whatnot. It was a calling out of this man's idols, his self-righteousness, his um, stature as someone with wealth. Yeah. Um, and how like that first part kind of gets lost in in using the second part where the he like again with with no sense of self-awareness immediately shows that he has his own God, which is him. I think it's a major problem in our society, both on social justice A and social justice B, um, that um, we have a incorrect view of corruption, mm-hmm. and nobody seems to understand it very well. And I think that a lot of folks uh, look upon themselves. I think the rich young ruler's problem was that he didn't see his own corruption. Mm-hmm. I think he he just had no clue that he was a sinner. He was by nature selfish. And I think in the world today, most people view us as having good within us. Mm -hmm. And that's a thing. We don't. There's been Christian people that haven't been, they don't have a sound foundation of the Bible. Mm -hmm. And even them, the first time they read Romans, where it talks about you were once enemies of God. I can remember someone that I loved dearly coming up and saying, I was an enemy of God? I didn't know that. And I said, yeah, honey, we all were. Mm -hmm. It wasn't that you just didn't know God. You were an enemy of God. Yeah. You know, we don't don't see it that way. Yeah, in the Christian community, a lot of people want to work. And they're like the rich young ruler. They're saying, what can I do? to enter the kingdom of God. And the flawed question there, you can't do anything except for acknowledge your own sinfulness and your need of a savior. And Jesus tried to get him in that direction, but it was too hard for him to see that because he, you know, he's a rich fella. So he looks at himself as better than anybody else around, blessed by God. Mm -hmm. And that's why he's wealthy and things like that. So he had no conception of his own corruption. You know, and if you look at society now with this whole high level of self-actualization and everything that's going on, but then you also look at it in a broader sense and anxiety and mental illness and stress 
you know, the, the line was it's become trendy <laughs> to have mental illness. But I mean, all of that stuff is rising. And there was a, I'm reading a really good blog on, um, on this, and there was a line in it that says, you see, whenever we take matters into our own hands, then faith and hope are no longer exercised. And when faith and hope are no longer exercised, then they will be replaced by something and usually by discontentment and a lack of peace. You know, you're trying again to go back and fill that hole in a way that you cannot. Even if all your dots were lined up and everybody accepted everything you thought they had to accept, you're still going to have that. So We're being left to our own devices and watching chaos rise. One paragraph in this section confuses me. I guess I'd appreciate people comment. I've often called RuPaul, Ron Paul, RuPaul. Ernst and Young. Kind of close. Yeah, and it's yeah. Kind of exactly. Several times I've cut mistaken that way. Anyways, RuPaul says on page 32, second paragraph, the Reading Social Justice paragraph, uh, the bait switch is baked, based, baked into its definition of justice. As RuPaul put in an interview with Time, and this is the part I understand, drag has always served a purpose. We mock identity, we're shape shifters, we're God in drag, and that's our role to remind people. What does that mean? I don't understand. I mean, it's pointing out like the history behind drag culture. And I think his point that he's trying to make is that because they mock traditional like roles and expectations of what is masculine or feminine, they then therefore have some sort of divinity. Not necessarily that they are gods, but that they are superior to the society around them because they can shape shift, mm -hmm. they can change identity, they can adapt a new persona. Mm -hmm. And therefore they're reminding people of that, that there's uh, like a transcendent element to their persona. Mm -hmm. Even they use that word persona. Right, drag persona versus who you are outside of drag. Um, but it is again just elevating self. Okay. We're um we are God and therefore people who don't understand it or people who criticize it or people who don't um appreciate it the way that we feel it should be appreciated, they therefore don't belong as part of like the actual loving, believing sect. They're not part of or worship as our, our God. It's like, it's like an ultimate form of rebellion. The mm -hmm. uh, Bible makes it very clear, and he created them male and female. And so drag culture comes along and says, we're going to turn that on its nose. We're going to turn it upside down. We're not going to adhere to it. And, and, and then, so you reject God, and ultimately you make yourself God. You become the lawgiver. Mm -hmm. I think there is a, just based on like the research that I've been doing, because um, I'm in the public school, and so you know I see um, a lot of of choices being made that I don't think are fully understood. Mm -hmm. But there is a, a really shocking willingness on all sides of when it comes to like the, the non-binary or the the um, trans youth debate 
there is a huge unwillingness to address the comorbidity that comes with gender, gender dysmorphia as a psychological disorder. The what that comes with what? Comorbidity. Comorbidity. What that means is that it is much more easily paired with other types of um, neurochemical imbalances or, or mental illnesses, particularly anxiety and depression. Um, and so when this new identity is latched onto as the way out of that darkness, mm -hmm. then anything that stands in that way is somehow punishing or re-traumatizing to that person because their their one way forward that they thought they had, which was something outside of Christ, to not necessarily reckon with their very real like turmoil that they are suffering from. Um, that becomes their one way out. That becomes their one ray of hope. And so anything that um, stands in the way of that or anything that like um, puts a barrier between them and their, their perceived need for this new identity becomes a risk. That's how it's kind of phrased, right? If you don't use preferred pronouns or if you don't recognize someone else's gender identity, you are endangering them because this is what they need in order to like stay mentally healthy. And I think there is a huge like issue when it comes to discussing this particular type of self-idolization, which is the willingness to dismiss it as just being made up. Like you don't actually need that. You're just trying to do it for attention or you don't actually, there isn't actually something um, that you need like core that needs addressing through counseling, through reckoning, through um, services of that nature. And so there is a willingness kind of on more of the, the like ideological right to dismiss it outright, that it's not real, it's not a thing. But there's also a, a tendency on the ideological left to dismiss the comorbidity, that this right. is what will make you happy. So therefore, there is no need to treat the underlying issues. Yeah. There is no need to reckon with these things um, in order to help you rationalize, um, there is only, okay, we can celebrate the new you and then you'll be okay. And then when they aren't, like there was a study done in Switzerland, granted this data is old, but it was in 2015, I think, that found that the rate of suicide after um, gender reassignment surgery did not lessen because it isn't addressing the core issue. Hmm. You know, it was nice that they ended this chapter with that gentleman in the Hollywood church, yeah. you know, that, that, that it yeah. wasn't, um, For you, know, you didn't have to get, Sorry. you didn't have to get all involved in a lot of that deconstruction of, of the thinking and his life and all that. Not that I'm not devaluing that, but that God spoke to his heart, yeah. mm -hmm. you know, God spoke to his heart. And then that was the step that, put the light into his understanding. Mm -hmm. I think that's important. I do think that um, talking about the the non-binary mm -hmm. and all of that stuff going on, there's, there's a lot of what we all went through, which is the need to be accepted, awkwardness, mm -hmm. not feeling. And so now you throw in this whole new mindset, and now it's popular. So I read an article in the Gospel Coalition by a mother who they had put their Christ, their daughter in public school, they're Christians, and all of a sudden she's going to these meetings and because she's being accepted 
when she says, and so she comes home saying, I think I'm going to be, a, I, I want to be identified as a boy. So the mother's uh, saying, we as Christians don't have any resources on how to navigate this whole situation. They decided as parents to love her, to still be believers, and then they pulled her home and homeschooled her, and it took a year, but then she started to see her identity in Christ, and she came out of that. Mm -hmm. And hmm. it wasn't really who she is, That, but she was confused, and she was getting validation, going to meetings and being accepted. And I think that's part of what they want to be accepted. And I know you see it at the public school, my daughter does. There's so much broken homes that these kids don't have parents that are guiding them. You know, my, my daughter teaches out in Hampton where some of them have their grandparents raising them or she can't even get parents to call her back when the kids aren't even coming to class. You know, I mean, there's just no attention towards the children and we're losing that generation. Well, I think that's why he spends so much time, not necessarily like, because the, the point that you raise about um, parenthood actually comes up later in this um, book, but that idea of social acceptance, mm -hmm. that you will let me be who I want, therefore, like, this is good, or the need that people feel to fit in, and how can you do that? And so is it popular to say that, oh, that isn't um, something that can be endorsed in my faith? Or is the need to be liked too strong? Right. I, I don't know if any of you guys are Office fans, but that's one of my favorite quotes about just the the absolute like neuroticism of Michael Scott, where he's like, I don't have to be liked. I need to be liked. I have to be liked. But it's not like a compulsive need, like my need to be praised. And that's just like so indicative, I think, of not just incredibly ridiculous characters as portrayed by Steve Carell, but just us, right? We need to be liked. And part of that weirdly, I think, connects to the um, idol of the state that he talks about and our need for order. And so therefore, can we have the people we like in charge? So therefore we get what we want. Um, and that has been pursued to horrific ends across the globe in any other, like any moat on that ideological spectrum, that idea, if we can have the people we like, therefore we all get what we want. And the people who don't want what we want are bad people, which is what we talked about with last chapter with recognizing the inherent dignity of all humans. Um, that becomes so much easier to dismiss that humanity because they're not good people because good people want you to be happy. And so since they don't want that happiness for you, or since they are um, disagreeing with you, therefore they don't deserve respect or um, they don't deserve like uh, a place in your society because your society will only be for good people who will give you what you want. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about, you, you started by referring to the anxiety and turmoil that a young person would have that would even cause them to look at a new identity as a way out. What's, what's the source of the anxiety and turmoil that would lead to something that extreme? I mean, sometimes, typically, it's been early childhood, like, uh, trauma, either emotional or physical. 
um, particularly coming from broken homes. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of different data points because sometimes I think, and this is just the result of living in a fallen world, sometimes there isn't a reason. Sometimes your brain does not produce enough serotonin. And so there isn't uh, necessarily a contributing factor as to why you have these feelings, but you have them. And so how do we move forward? Um, there's a lot of, and this is sometimes a talking point that's used too much, I think, but there is uh, some statistical viability between uh, early childhood molestation mm -hmm. and um, a new identity realized later that will keep you safe. Um, particularly when it comes to, to female to male transition. Um, mm -hmm. And that need again to, that this new self will be better, that there was something wrong with the old self. And so this new self, it will fix everything. I won't have that anxiety or that depression or that fear. I won't be that person who was a victim if I can be this new thing. Did you say molestation? Yes, I did. Okay. Mm -hmm. Because I think it's a lot more prevalent than we realize. It's very much more prevalent. Well, I think that's because you raise this point now where it's almost trendy to have anxiety or it's almost trendy to identify as having some sort of mental illness and mental incapacity. And in a way, that's true, right? There's a lot of things that are classified as, um, you know, being anxious or having OCD where it's used like just liking things in color order is not the same thing as having obsessive compulsion disorder. Um, but there, I think there's also more awareness of it now and more allowance that it is real, that it does exist, that there are things that um, you can't just make yourself be happy. A lot of the like there are some like legitimate neurochemical imbalances in brains that require medical attention just the way that eyesight does there's something in your brain that does not work right because we live in a fallen world but i think there was an an overwhelming tendency um to dismiss it as not real of like there isn't such a thing as mental illness especially if you look at like the really shocking history of how mental illness has been treated Particularly, I know we all think of like Bedlam in Victorian London where tickets could be sold and you could go stare at people who were mentally ill. That's like really horrific. You could do that in Lynchburg. Correct. 250 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, you didn't have to go to London. Right. You could, oh, it's, oh, it is yeah, alarmingly close. Yeah. yeah, eating that hay. That was kind of. There you go. <laughs> Um, but even then, like, it, there was something straight, like, they were weird things that were no longer people. So therefore, they deserved this treatment. I mean, um, one of the most famous atheistic scholars and, and psychologists in all of history, which is uh, Nietzsche, lost his mind and his sister sold tickets to see him. Mm. And like, after he had lost his ability to reason, like, she profited off of that. So this tendency has always been in us that suffering isn't real or if suffering is real you've done something to deserve it so therefore you deserve this kind of treatment were you raising a hand there mr mcconey hmm? were you raising a hand no oh, okay. to buy a ticket. <laughs> oh don't do that this is what we're trying to avoid <laughs> couple thought <clears throat> excuse me couple thoughts one as i was reading this and it's continued as we've been talking here we could restrict this conversation just to Christians and yes. we have a lot to talk about. Yes. 
But yeah. when we expand that to unbelievers, there's good so night, what hope is there? Yeah. Outside of Christ, there is none. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There is just none at all. And the other thought I had is, at least from my perspective, I think we're seeing all these types of things more into a, a more drastic degree than we've ever seen them before, at least in our lifetime or in the history of this country that we're aware of. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a direct correlation between the rise of liberal theology in this country and the waning of true biblical evangelical Christianity and its impact on society, mm-hmm. which really brings to the forefront that statement of you are the salt of the earth. Mm-hmm. And when Christianity seek, ceases to be the preserving effect in society, look at all the consequences mm-hmm. that are coming out, what we could call un- unintended or even unexpected consequences. Mm-hmm. And they are everywhere. When the salt has lost its savor. Exactly. It's trodden and cast out. Trodden it's good for nothing. It's good, yeah, good for it's nothing. Be tossed out and are we talk to foot. Are we talking about the Idaho state right now? Good transition. <laughs> Make it so. Okay, um, on the bottom of page 33, the great triumph over evil then must be political. We must use the power of the law to squash those who dare question our self-defined selves. We're in election season, and I don't pay attention to politics a lot, but this time of year I do. Okay, I keep tabs on everything, but this time of year I do. And in the last few days, I've seen some stunning statements. One was that if the election goes a certain way, then we are like the beginning of Hitler's reign. That came out today. Another one is that if we vote a certain way, then we are on the edge of an authoritarian autocracy. Okay, and this statement makes you understand why. Because the the B side of things believes that many folks are questioning the very definition of self by saying you can't be self there is a truth out there there is and and those are known as traditionalists or conservatives or whatever you want to call them but they threaten the very idea of truth that that the the other side holds and it's so shocking to me to hear that i mean not only is it saying a statement about Hitler, an insult to every Jewish person in the world, but to, to say those things, I understand more why, because um, we're threatening their existence. If we, if we go a certain route, we, we're threatening their existence. And, and I was reading that while all this stuff was coming in and I was hearing all these things, I was like, good grief. I mean, is it going to get to the point where traditionalists are uh, put in prison? It, how, how far is this going to go? They already are. I mean, it's just on after that Baker three separate times. You know, the courts have said he was right. 
but it, it's crazy. It's, it's absolutely crazy. But this is taking that thing where government and pol political solutions to the ultimate level, it's taking it all the way to the very top and saying, uh, we get to be whatever we want to be. And we think your children should be that way too. And if you don't let us do it, then you're the bad guy. You're the Hitler in the room. I think the dangerous thing, though, is that all of those phrases that you just said could be used for any political belief behind it. That kind of language has been used on every single side because the point that he makes there is that this is wrong. To think that the great triumph over evil then must be political is a warping of the actual uh, service then. Um, we must use the power of the law to squash those who dare question our self-defined selves. Political activism becomes a spiritual quest to usher in a new heaven and new earth. I mean, that is what the seven mountain mandate is, which is a heresy in the new apostolic reformation that once you take control of all these different seven mountains that they think are like spiritual strongholds in society, then once you've done that, then the world will be ready for Christ to come back. You have to do it, and then it will be ready for him. Well, militant uh, philosophy is no good for anybody. anybody right. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, then he closed that chapter with that whole beautiful section about Martin Luther here mm -hmm. in statement. Mm -hmm. Yes. You know, it's always come to that. Mm -hmm. You know, now it's just, you can... Twitter or social media or whatever, you know, but it, 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 this is, I don't know when the year when was Martin Luther, when he was there. Mm -hmm. Oh, Lord, help me, oh, faithful and unchangeable mm -hmm. God, I lean not on man. The Diet of Worms. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he ended the, Dude, the, little later, 15, the, the Yeah, 1521 was when he was called up. Here I stand, I can do no other. That's a, but that's the challenge. Yeah, you know, that's the challenge mm -hmm. even in discussing things. Mm -hmm. You know, I taught elementary school, mm -hmm. and um, but God did so many wonderful things um, to protect me so that I could love those kids in Christ. I mean, PTA supported me, the principal supported me, the school psychologist supported me. And I'd go into an IEP, and I know you can't do this now, but I went into an IEP, and they said, what are you doing to make such a difference in that life? Can you please write it down? And I said, well, you have to write at the top of the IEP prayer. And I know you can't do that, but that's the beginning of this discussion. I pray for those kids, and I love Christ. And I said that and didn't get fired. And that's because the school psychologist was in the, I had an open door. Anybody want to know what I'm doing? I do not speak, you know, Bible. I live it. Come in my room. And they came in my room. I mean, the psychologist would sit there the entire time I was with these kids. And she, she, you were knocking off all these points of what a teacher's supposed to be doing. I said, yeah, because I'm walking in love. It's not because I'm going down a list. I know those kids, and I know what they need. And then you go on my desk, and you'll see the list of prayers for the kids every day. And it's, but you can't write that in your IEP. But I, again, it was a very unique situation, and I had an enormous amount of support in a public school. But you can't do that. I mean, I'm sure I get fired today. <laughs>
burnt by a stake or something. <laughs> and Dan knows that because they used to come by. We used to have, uh, again, things you cannot do today. We would have the families come by our house every month. A group, how many, I don't know how many. I'd have four, four, five kids, kids, four or five kids parents, and their moms and dads, siblings. and they'd come by and look through the observatory, and we'd have ice cream Sunday parties so that we got to know the families, you know, and um, so it was, a, it was a whole outreach to people. But those things you can't do. I mean, I'd have a hero. I guess I'm saying I would have a here I stand. <laughs> I, I, I did get whooped. <laughs> That's I think, again, this is, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but just like the, the nebulousness of words. Because when you say, and you have a, a rooted understanding in God's word, what you mean when you say, I love these kids. But when that foundation isn't established, like the phrase, I love these kids can be used again to promote ideologies that we would see as harmful. Yeah. Because it's it's a redefinition of what love means, right? To just say that love is love, or even more broadly, I think it was seen everywhere, is the idea that love wins. What is love? Or what is love supposed to be? Or the statement you don't love these kids right you you know to 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 set um some form of rule or standard that i don't really agree with you don't love these kids you have you have the problem that's that's a uh, um uh, just just comes out of those that have self as their creator. Mm -hmm. I think we would need to define what love is according to scripture. Mm -hmm. I mean, we have that beautiful passage that like everyone quotes from you know, 1 Corinthians 13. But I think there is a keener aspect of our knowledge of love found in 1 John, which is that we love because he first loved us. Mm. So what does his love look like? What does, like, um, what does that cause us to recognize about ourselves? That, as you said, that that realization that you're not just not a Christian, you were an enemy. You were a, a thing that hated God. <clears throat> Even if you did not recognize yourself as that, that is what you were. Mm -hmm. Except for God's grace. And I think when we say that, it's important to mention that when we say they are God-haters, most people say, I never hated God. Mm -hmm. uh, they did not hate the image of God they had created in their own mind. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But the true God of the Bible, if they had a clear perception of who he is, that they would hate. Well, that's um, Bart Campolo, who is uh, Tony Campolo's son, who's like a big advocate for secular humanism. Mm. Um, he mentioned that 
it isn't that he doesn't love God. It's that he can't worship a God that doesn't love everyone. And so, therefore, since the God of the Bible has rules, he doesn't therefore love everyone. So, therefore, mm. he is not worthy of worship. So, it isn't that he hates God. It's that he loves people. Interesting. Hmm. No. Thoughts on that? That's what he says, but that's not... That's not what he means. Right. Because <clears throat> God is who he is. And if you don't like it, that means you hate him. Simple as that. He can try to self-justify it any way he wants, but... You can turn the lights on, or you can turn the lights off. There's a lot, there's a lot of binary in life. There's a lot of binary with God. Um, there is one way. There's not five ways. There's one way. Uh, and there's a lot of people who do not like binary, on or off, this or that, yes or no. Because it infringes upon the self. So, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Men. I mean, it, and, and yeah, man, woman, but, and, and it's not just social justice B people that struggle with, with that. Yeah. It's everyone. I mean, it's that, it's the sin nature. Um, mercifully, we recognize that we, have a sin nature mm -hmm. um there are others other people who that that's as meaningless to them as syriac is to me you know that's it just doesn't i can't grasp that and they can't grasp that unless god reveals it to them mm -hmm. yeah i've been pondering about what tim said a little bit ago about um, rise of liberal theology, and I took your took your point a little bit further. Rise of liberal theology in the West. So later, eighteen hundreds, um, um, and and on. So if in that period of time um, there were at first um, people who were going to church, um, being in the presence of God, but were being misled by their shepherds um, within this liberal theology, that, um, that sowed some fields, and something got reaped out of that. And then as that continued, and their next generation got further from the truth. And then their next generation got further from the truth. Um, it reminds me of Old Testament study um, of the divided kingdom. Mm -hmm. It did not take too many generations before their world fell apart. Um, and I think that uh, there is a lot of social justice B activity that is trying to um, put the world back together, if you will. But they don't have 
God's values, they don't have the creator to focus on. The lens is the lens is either all foggy or it's like a fly's eye and it sees a thousand different things. Um, and so that that perpetuates and just gets more magnified and more magnified with each passing generation. As they try, as the, as the world comes further and further apart, or their world or their vision of their world comes further and further apart, they're trying to spread bigger arms to get around it mm -hmm. and to get and to get control of it. Meanwhile, it's like the balloon that you squeeze; it's going every different direction. Hmm. How hopeless it must be to be without hope and realize that hope exists, but you can't see it. Yeah, well, they just wait for the next election. They can now get their voice. That's that part of this. That's 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 part of the balloon is squeezed. Yeah, but yeah, the politicians put the carrot out in front of them. And, yeah, vote for me, and your world will be great. And okay, we didn't get it this midterm. Next midterm, we'll get it. And then in between, it's you know, if it's the election, in between, it's you know, somebody else. It's some social influencer that says you can do this. It's the lottery, it's the, you know, it's whatever, it's the, it's the school system, it's, you know, we'll do, we'll do this. It's, it's trying to get arms around something without realizing that the creator is there. How hopeless. But looking at this last story with Beckett, God can take anybody and change their heart. The hope is there. Christ is the hope. And he is not out of what's going on right now. I've been very, you know, you can get upset as a believer and say, oh, where are we going? We're going where God is mm -hmm. going to use. Mm -hmm. And he's calling believers who we've become complacent mm -hmm. to go. We need to, wait, you know, yeah. let's wake up. Yeah. You know. And then when Tim talked, I, I was connecting that story to to him going to a church and hearing mm -hmm. the word, mm -hmm. going to somewhere and really hearing the word. Um, and if the, and if someone does not go, then someone needs to go to them. Mm -hmm. And well, he encountered, you know, of course. God prepared his heart without him even being and to cause him to be unhappy and to start questioning. Yeah. And then people were having a Bible study that he was there, mm -hmm. not by chance, by God's ordained plan, and invited him to church. So it was kind of like everything. God set the whole thing in motion. And I relate to this story from the sense that I was very unhappy in high school going, this, what, this can't be it as a Catholic person you know I can't, mm -hmm. this can't be all there is I, I i did the fraternity thing the sorority thing went to the bars and i would stand there and go this can't be what's happy this is hopeless to me this seems so sad that this is where people are not happy here mm -hmm. so here's preparing me to be prepared to then get invited to church and go you know it was like mm -hmm. everything 
just fell into place exactly whatever but he was preparing me along the way mm -hmm. by making me question and being unhappy you know so you know that I, and I can't quote it because I don't haven't memorized it but in the word where it says be ready always for every man to give you a, an answer for the reason of hope that's in you Peter and you know when it's I, Dan, I share with him when I'm at the gym, um, and I do go because I need to go for mm -hmm. bone strength. So it's a, an investment of time, but there's so many times that every time I go, somebody comes up that I don't know with a need mm -hmm. and an opportunity to share. The, I mean, it's just weird. You know, so like yesterday, some weird. guy, but I mean, it's just not. It's Christ. It is, people but to uh, you. that's a poor choice of words, but it, it's given the context of what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. A gentleman came up to me yesterday mm -hmm. and he was beside himself and he, I don't know him. He's, I, I know you, you've been here before. My wife just left me. Oh. I said, well, mm -hmm. are you involved in a church? Mm -hmm. And, and I, he said, yes. And he said, well, you need to get in a men's group and get a man to counsel you. Mm -hmm. Um, I, and I had a whole thing, a whole mm -hmm. thing that I could help him with. But there's a saying where it says, "Providence is a soft pillow on which to lay your head at night." Mm -hmm. Is that God is in control of all things? My responsibility is to keep my head to to know the Bible, keep my head in fellowship and alignment with God, and then just keep putting one foot in front of the other. Mm -hmm. um, I know at the hospital, I can't tell you how many times. I don't have this overwhelming sensation, but I will be very clearly directed by God and the Holy Spirit. You need to pray. You need to pray with this person. There you go. And in whether I, I, I'm in a Catholic hospital now, but I've been in non non-religious hospitals, and I don't care. I'm, I'm like, and it, and I've never had a somebody turn me down because. The Holy Spirit directs, and I'm obedient to that because I know that that's the Lord directing me. And I was saying, no, this is God telling you He knows you're here and He cares about you. This is not me. And that's what I always tell patients. It's an honor to pray with you, but I can't. It's just we have to be bold when you think about because if we're not bold, who, who else is praying for that person? I Maybe nobody. You know, no. I had a friend of mine at our other church say when her mother, when her <clears throat> parents died, she was overwhelmingly sad because her parents prayed for her, and she's like, she was gonna lose that whole layer of prayer mm -hmm. from her parents her whole life that she knew, and that was the thing that broke her heart the most about losing her parents was they had prayed for her every day, and now that was not there. You know, just knowing their parents have been praying for. So, can we turn to the bottom of page thirty-seven? And uh, I'll just read the question number three. I think it'd be good discussion for us to have. What are some metrics we could use to discern when we have crossed the line and turned our political convictions or affiliations into idols? Just assume you have. 
<laughs> I mean, we're talking about idols and we're saying, okay, if you go on the A side or the B side, you can always have idols. And I, what I'm hearing people say is that except for the firm foundation of Jesus Christ and the gospel, there is no firm foundation other than that. So anything we lay our hands on is corrupted. And then I say, well, wait a second. I may be on the firm foundation of Jesus Christ, but I still have idols. <laughs> and sometimes those idols get the best of me. And like I said earlier, it's rarely political for me, although sometimes I feel strongly, but it can be a lot of other things. I mean, I remember times in my life, in my life, where theology was my idol, mm -hmm. and theology is a good thing. Mm -hmm. But you can make it into an idol, and you can make it into something that puffs up your head, and you think you're doing right. So you're saying, "Hey, I'm walking with Jesus. I'm I got all this figured out. I'm walking with Jesus." But that theology idol then bites you, and you say, "Wait a second. <laughs> I'm missing something. I'm missing the fact that I need the gospel every day from the moment I wake up to the moment I close my eyes at night. That gospel has to be alive in me. And theology can't fill that hole. Can't fill that need. There's nothing that we do where idolatry isn't just at the door we're tempted and all i mean jesus was tempted mm -hmm. every, like our all things all everything we do it's it's always there <clears throat> would a metric or a barometer mean when you when you notice that you're putting that before your trust and faith and humility before god you know I'm right. Well, did you ask God? <laughs> did you ask for wisdom? Did you look to the Lord to see and weigh your thought on this? Or is it just something that is the way you think? This is just coming from someone who was raised around really bad theology. But even that sometimes is misleading. It's that idea of eisegesis, of like, well, I can find it in the word, therefore it's right. And so is your understanding of the word correct? Is your understanding of who God is, of what the gospel is, of what you are, is that right? Um, because we see like, I mean, Joel Osteen has gone on record saying that most people are inherently good. And so just because something is called Christian doesn't mean it's Christian. Mm -hmm. So that, that call, I think, not just to prize knowledge for knowledge's sake, or not just to prize, okay, I can find it in Scripture, therefore it's right, but what does Scripture mean? That call kind of to discernment, I think, is one that has been really neglected. Um, you made the mention earlier, um, Dave, about, like, bad shepherds who had therefore, like, everything had weakened because of that. Mm -hmm. um, and there are some really chilling examples if we look at people like John Alexander Dowley and leading on into like William Branham and a lot of really horrific things that were done in the name of God. Um, but like that 
comfort of like, well, because I have a Bible or because I go to a church, therefore I am a Christian. Mm-hmm. And that I think is, is a false sense of comfort. There is yeah. a, a real reckoning that has to happen when it comes to the individual's relationship with Christ. Oh, mm-hmm. gosh. Oh, like you mentioned and really, false shepherds, and false shepherds will not lead them there mm-hmm. um, they will continue to to uh, you know I, I grew up in New England and in many towns in New England there's a congregational church on every you know every mm-hmm. center of town but there are many congregational churches with um, it's, it's truly a liberal theology mm-hmm. uh, with false shepherds leading them and there's generations of families who have been part of those churches who have just been, just are, are apart from God. Right. But as far as metrics go, the standard is Christ. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the standard that we have for each of us. He was human just like we are. That's the standard. So we all know we're falling short of the standard, but he also gives us other things to keep us in the right place. And he gives us our church family. He gives us, my wife often will say to me, aren't you getting a little wrapped up in this? And she could just say, are you making an aisle out of this? But she does a little nicer than this. Okay, that's, there are things like that. Um, I tell my wife all the time that I love my men's group. Okay, and um, I love going to it. I love talking to the guys. I love the discussions we have. And that helps to keep you in the right place. But um, but the, the standard's got to be Christ. And that's a good point. I mean, he's given us the body of Christ in order to encourage and help and strengthen and direct one another. He, God didn't leave us alone with our Bibles. Mm-hmm. You know, um, yeah. he, he gave us one another in the family and in the body of Christ. So that's important. <clears throat> and not devaluing what you say. No, still yeah. know that the Word of God is what directs our hearts and sets that. Mm-hmm. And I'm not talking Bible thumping, mm-hmm. false preachers and right. all that. If I sit and I'm quiet in my heart in prayer, I know that I will be directed in a way that's mm-hmm. appropriate. See, the two go together because, um, you, so you can go back to Luther, and his big uh, moment at the Diet of Worms was he's basically going against all of medieval theology, mm-hmm. medieval political system, the medieval ecclesiastical system, and the mindset for people back then was we do things in community, and Luther was saying, how can I, the only man here, be correct and everyone else is wrong? And we don't do, so, but Luther was correct, mm-hmm. but we don't then usually do scripture, exegesis, or study alone. Mm-hmm. We have each other, like I prayed earlier, iron sharpens iron, but also um, church history and, and the tradition which can help us, but is not our final authority, but it can mm-hmm. help us. And we don't you'd be a fool to neglect what others have said before. And so 
you know, studying, but then being cautious to making sure you're correct. The community helps. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And how much does he, understanding he, change as we grow? Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, what you see is the grace of God becomes really the grace of God the older you get. At least for me, it has been. Well, that was funny that he said, give me a day to think about Yes. <laughs> and then he, then he came back and he said, my conscience is captive to the word of God. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then he did the famous here I stand. Mm -hmm. I can do no other. Um, so he he basically said, Christ is the metric. The word of God is Christ, because he is the word. And I'm held captive to that. Mm -hmm. And that's where I'm going to stay. And yet even where he was, there still was all the imperfections that he had. <laughs> yeah. He beat himself up so much in his life. Mm -hmm. If you read about Martin Luther, he beat himself up all the time. Uh, he beat up bit. others too. Yeah. yeah, he did, but he he really was hard on himself. I think he spent something like three hours um, a day confessing mm -hmm. sins. Yeah. I think that's what's kind of interesting is that the figure of Martin Luther has actually been adopted by a lot of people who are deconstructing, um, who are like working from a more traditional understanding of Christianity and working towards something that is more progressive. And so they use Luther as kind of like that forefather, like, well, Luther was just asking questions or Luther was, you know, deconstructing. So therefore, is deconstruction really that bad? But you have to like look at he wasn't asking questions just for questions sake mm -hmm. what were his questions about what was his not necessarily like deconstruction but reconstruction that's why it's called the reformation what was it centered on um it wasn't just to now do since it was what everyone had done before you we need to change because god is changing and therefore we need to change with the times we need to become more enlightened and therefore we can unlearn all of our bad theological behaviors that is not what luther was doing and so having that clear understanding of like what is our foundation and what does it have to be why can't it change that is a hard line that I don't think a lot of people are willing to accept because a hard line means there is a this and a that. There is mm. good and bad. Is that deconstruction a big deal out there now? Oh, yeah. Oh, yes. Um, yeah, with a lot of particularly younger Christian influencers, uh, deconstruction is a huge thing. Like, I don't know if you guys know, like, Rhett and Link from, like, Good Mythical yeah. Morning. But, but it's, they, in, it's in everything now. Yeah. Well, I know Movies Piper's, and books. One of Piper's kids has a whole thing oh. to do. Yeah, Abraham Piper. No, the, the other one, the one that, that uh, his other boy that's a youth minister now. I don't know. He used that term, which surprised me. It's mm -hmm. postmodern thinking. Yeah, it's not just in it's in, it's all in all spheres. Of okay, right. But it's becoming more of a term in particularly like progressive or people who are raised in the church who are then disappointed by the church and then now want to find a way back to what they term to be a loving God. But again, what does their definition of loving mean? It means what they want. Right. <laughs> it's what they want. And so it all it all points back to um, you know, self 
is an idol factory. Mm-hmm. Uh, That's what this chapter's been about. Yeah, yeah. Selm is a is a you know is a great idol factory because uh, you can tomorrow morning you can run across something that gets between you and God. It captures your conscience. Captures your conscience. I hadn't thought about this before, but uh, or so when you're talking about how much Luther suffered and beat himself up, Luther was asking the question, what must I do to be saved? Right. Jesus asked the rich young, or the rich young ruler asked Jesus, what must I do to be saved? Mm-hmm. Jesus immediately took him to the point to see that what he must do, he can't do anything to save himself because he's ultimately unwilling to do what he needs to do in order to save himself. Martin Luther had to go through that over a long period of time, uh, but it was the same process. But fortunately, Luther found the answer in the scriptures uh, that the just will live by faith. Be nice to know if the rich and ruler ever came to that understanding. I, I, I don't know. We don't. I mean, all we know is that he left. Right. Well, Jesus didn't. Jesus say right after he left that it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle mm-hmm. than a rich man to enter the kingdom, kingdom of God. Well, it's because of the rich man's worldview. The rich man's worldview is that I am successful. I've been blessed. I'm one of God's people because mm-hmm. I'm rich right. and blessed and, and, and mm-hmm. that person over there is not and therefore he does not have the favor of god so it was his worldview that was keeping him from even understanding what a desperate shape he was in <laughs> but he was religious kind of like he could have been a pharisee like i mean yeah, yeah. i did all these things you know i've i'm a yeah i kept these laws and you know he'd rattle off but it was impossible for him to understand yeah. how impoverished he was right, spiritually. Yeah. in the eyes of God. Yeah. It was impossible for him to understand that because of the wealthy blessing that he had. It's impossible for him to understand that. Right. And I have found that when I run into rich people, I see that. I see that. That they actually believe they're better than everybody because... Yeah. Whatever they worked hard and self-made millionaire, or they, you know, however they went, and so. But then the disciples say, "Well, who then can be saved?" And he says, "With, with God, man is impossible. With man is God. God. Yeah. <laughs> so God can save the rich. He could have yeah. saved the rich young ruler. We don't know. We don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Joseph of Arimathea could get the Pilate at the crucifixion and get the body." You know, he was connected. Yeah. And he was rich. Nicodemus. We were talking about this last night that um, after the fall, man has lost all ability to do any spiritual good. So this doesn't only apply to um, the rich, it applies to all people. No one can come to God unless, yeah. um, unless the Father. Draws them. And that's where our compassion comes in. Because people can't see. Those that don't know the Lord, they can't see it until he shows them. 
And so we that's where we need to be compassionate and understanding, and that's where the loving and the non, you know, comes in when talking about the, the B side of things, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. It is. Even righteousness can become an idol. Right. Right, because then ultimately we have a term for it, self-righteousness. Which is oxymoronic. It's not a very large section in this chapter, just mm-hmm. a couple lines beyond one page. But the section on the idol of the state that we haven't yeah. talked about, uh, when G.K. Chesterton said, once we abolish God, the government becomes God. Uh, we we could have a whole book written on well there have been whole books written on on that very subject but uh, in relation to social justice the, the move has been almost from the beginning to capture government and then to use government to bring about our vision of social justice now talking about social justice be now that's the way they choose to use the to bring about what they want to see happen. And uh, there's a lot more that could be said than what's said in this chapter. It's interesting when Jesus um, was was asked about, about the, the coin, and Jesus' response was, render unto Caesar what is Caesar, and render unto God what is God. That is a loaded, loaded statement, because he, what he's saying is, contrary to the common belief in the Roman Empire, Caesar is not God. But that was a, uh, a rebellious statement. Right? And the implications of that are very significant. And now we're going in just the opposite direction. Yeah. I think in this quest for justice, which um, is something we are called to in Scripture, that's why there is a differentiation between social justice A, which holds to the foundation of the truth of God's word, versus social justice B, which does not. In this need for justice, we are very unwilling to recognize the fact that we need it, that we are unjust and that there is nothing we can do to change that situation. And I think there's a tendency, particularly with more progressive theology, but um, just in, you know, in a bunch of different um, areas of, you know, modern life now, which is the idea of what's fair, because that's not fair. That, you know, me just being born automatically means I'm at war with God and automatically means that I need salvation. That doesn't seem fair. And that's why we have, I mean, huge theological debates over this, right? Um, From centuries as to, well, no, people are basically good. And no, you can choose, you know, um this prioritization of free will because otherwise it's not fair and i think like we we are in no position to determine what is or isn't fair 
because we're created things. We like the creator is the one who gets to determine what is fair and what isn't. And that is just something that we're not willing to accept because if it's not for my good, it's like that extremely widespread misinterpretation of Jeremiah's 29.11 of what it means to be prospered by God or what it means to get good by God, right? The other extreme misinterpretation of Romans 8.28 of that everything that makes me happy is therefore what comes from God and therefore it's good because I get what I want and I'm not unjustly punished for something that I didn't even realize was wrong because that's not fair. Thoughts on that? Well, it's not fair. We get saved. Right, exactly. <laughs> no. I used to tell my kids all the time. What's right about God that? God's not fair. Right. If he was fair, we'd all, we'd all... I used to say that to him. Life's not fair. You know, but God. By what standard are you um, making the claim that something is fair or not? Right. If you're making the standard yourself, well, you're imperfect, mm -hmm. you're sinful, so how is your standard of what's fair and what's not reliable? Right. Mm. right. We've conflated good with not as bad as. Mm -hmm. So it's not that you're good, it's that you're not as bad as someone else. And so if you can point out someone else's malfeasance, then that somehow earns you credit. Yeah. When in fact, no. <laughs> no. Doesn't work that way. I just can't wait for Jesus to come back. <laughs> I, mean, I was just looking at the whole last four chapters of Job where God answers. Yeah. Who are you? Did you make this? Did you do that? Who are you, old man? <laughs> Yeah. Why should the pot say to the potter, why have you made me in this way? Right. It's not fair. Mm -hmm. What is man? Four chapters. <laughs> yeah. Still going back. It's just, you made me a bed pad. <laughs> I mean, that's been the heart of all of these questions. That's why they're linked as part of part one, because they're so essential to understanding how we can pursue earthly justice as we are called to do by scripture, is by understanding of who God is, what dignity God has given as creator to the created things, and why we are so keen to worship anything but him. Because if we recognize him as God, what does that mean about us? Any other thoughts on that? I can think of at least four or five founding fathers. They put it in their own words. But they're all, they all were saying that this form of government that we have given you is made for a moral people. And by that they meant religious as well. Uh, and if this country ceases to be that, this form of government will not work. And I think that's what we're seeing today. Yeah, our government was built on the um, the dependence on self-governance. Yes. And if you have a people that do not have the ability to self-govern, 
in a biblical worldview, right. which they all shared. Yeah. That government will fall. Yeah. And yeah, like you said, we're seeing that. Jared? The one Christian. What? Jefferson as an open Yeah, but he operated out of. Right. He operated out of an understanding, right, basis in that, uh, in that framework. And even but. even though they had personal opinions against Christianity in their public life, they could only go so far because the culture was, they lived and breathed it almost, even though they were all, I wouldn't say we're a Christian nation. No. But that's, I think. But unlike it, today's culture, that's, right. it's not even close. It's like two different mm -hmm. cultures, really. I remember when I did my student teaching, and it was a long time ago, and the teacher that I student taught kindergarten with had the kids memorize the preamble to the Constitution. She couldn't do that today. <laughs> I, I was really, that was part of their and pledge allegiance and all this yeah. stuff as far as away from that. And that's probably 30 years ago. Well, I think that I've seen several times where the people on the on the far end of social justice B have actually said that the Constitution is not adequate. Mm -hmm. For our nation any longer it's not adequate we need to redo it and the constitutional republic and that's what we are we're not a democracy we're a constitutional republic um, was set up kind of as an experiment and you know could this possibly work the jury's still out i got to know bill barker pretty well before he left here, the guy that portrayed Thomas Jefferson at Colonial Williamsburg. And we talked quite a bit about Jefferson and a couple of things he pointed out was he was a faithful vestryman in, in the Anglican Church and in the Episcopal Church, which meant he had to be in church at least one Sunday every month. And, and he always was. And, and of course, he. There are different periods of his life when he seemed to be more one way or another, but I'm not convinced he was a deist. I don't know if I would call him an evangelical Christian or not, but... Theistic rationalist. Yeah, that's what he called himself. The what? Theistic rationalist. Yeah, he... Not quite a deist. Open to the concept of God. So what do you mean by deist? I don't think I understand. The deist is one who believes that God exists and that the universe is like a giant clock and God wound it up and it's been going based on natural law ever since that time. But where God is today, what God is doing, we don't know. I think I could make a stronger case that Benjamin Franklin was a deist. Mm -hmm. And yet it was Benjamin Franklin that wanted every every day in the Constitutional Convention that they open in prayer. Now, that's not a consistent deist. Well, that's what I'm talking, that's what I was mentioning, that their public life was different mm -hmm. oh, than okay. some of their private beliefs because of the culture they were in. Right. Well, Frank, like Franklin had a lot of private life. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you can read about that. Yeah. 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 The syphilis speaks to that. So I think the tendency for us as Americans, and I'm sounding like most of us are conservative Americans, stick to the Constitution is if we just go back to governing according to the Constitution, everything would be fixed. But that, that would be, I think, our mistake. 
Right. <laughs> Why else do we have all these amendments? But the Constitution is flawed. Right. It's not the. It isn't the Word of God. But yeah, yeah. Every day I pray, Thy kingdom come, because that's the kingdom yeah. that's going to work. Yeah, I yes. think it is uh, important, and he mentions it in this chapter as well that the kingdom of heaven is populated by people of every tribe nation oh, that's a good point um and so there isn't necessarily one nation that is just god's people mm -hmm. after christ mm -hmm. whereas i think there is a tendency particularly in in certain parts of the american church to believe that that is now america especially if you look at people like john hagee and whatnot um i probably spend too much time researching false teachers it's just as a confessional thing here it's pride though it's pride to think that it's just america yeah and you know they'd say you'd be surprised who you're going to see up in heaven right right we are a nation that has no borders and knows no borders supposedly there's more true christians in china right now than there is in america yep but i think that also speaks to what we were talking about earlier of the the assumption that like having a bible is the same as knowing god mm -hmm. and um the very like the what is majority like christian like uh media right now is if you actually listen to it and not that christian of like if you think of like who's the most popular populous people like stephen furtick joel osteen um kenneth copeland like just what they teach is yeah, that i'm gonna i'm gonna quote major here yeah. and say progressive christianity is not christianity it's completely no religion. it absolutely is that's also like that's the equal and opposite kind of thing that there is there's so much distractors that use the label christian yeah what are we called to as christians who follow christ what are we called to right I know we are past our time, so, um, you know, I want to respect everyone's, you know, commitment that they made to the evening. Um, but are there other, like, final thoughts that you guys want to share about part one, about this question in particular, about as we move forward to more specific applications of the term social justice? Um, are there things that you guys are looking forward to, things that you guys have read in the book that you're excited to talk about or want to talk about with others just for edification or clarification anything like that i just go on one chapter at a time <laughs> if, if you read right, ahead you if you read ahead, ahead by the time you get to the meeting you, you forgot it so you gotta, re <laughs> you gotta re read it anyway so Skip yeah. the middle. Read your panels. Okay. Gwen, I am so. I hope you can hear this because my computer <laughs> mic is ridiculously bad. I'm recording it if you can. Yeah, there you go. Yay! There's some interesting stuff. In that is another thing to add onto the pile of idols of our hearts. Yeah, it can be. Do you guys hear that? What Gwen said. Something about the yeah, idol is The Constitution can become an idol. Yeah. But thank you for letting me see everything. Can be. Yeah. That would be on the far end of social justice, eh? Well, I think, like, 
because social justice A is supposed to be the biblical understanding of um, what justice can be. And so, like, social justice B is this false understanding and false application that typically falls more on the ideological left. But I think there's a lot of pitfalls that surround social justice A that are called social justice but aren't. Right. Mm-hmm. I think especially if you begin to make politics your personality and your identity. The idol of the state, perhaps. Yeah. So. Yeah. <laughs> you know something? I really need to get this book. It sounds very interesting. <laughs> Yeah, I did bring um, Beckett Cook's book, which is what I held up, which I realize is very little use in a recorded session. Um, but if you guys want to look at, because the, the first half of the book is his story, but the second half is like questions um, that, and one of which is, doesn't God want you to be happy? And so a lot of it is like examination of, his life, his reckoning with uh, his lifestyle in um, relation to the word of God. And it's also questions that he uses f- like for people who have um, family members who are in that world, how can they best pray or how can they engage with them respectfully? And so I do recommend it. Um, so if you want to check that out, I sent the link out through the remind, um, but he also has a YouTube page where he does like interviews and book reviews and stuff. Um, so if you guys want to check him out, that's why I brought it. Sam. All right. Well, I think that'll wrap it up. Would anyone like to pray for us before we leave? Well, I prayed. I opened the prayer. (laughs) Ron, could you pray for us? I'll be glad. Thank you. Father, thank you so much for this time together. Thank you for the ability we have to take a look at what an author has tempted our hearts or tempted our minds to understand what's going on in the world around us today. We just pray you'll help us to work through some of the matters that are coming up in these chapter by chapter, and we look forward to further discussions, obviously. Thank you for this time together, and be with us as we head our way back to our cottages. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.